Okay, what's going on out there? I um, just noticed it's been a very long time since um, I uploaded anything, so I'm very um, basically forcing myself to do this right now. I um, We just finished a, a week-long session today. Well, today it's... Sunday, and um, it was totally different, totally different, going into Sashin, I connected with um, the story of Shariputra, who was apparently the first uh, housekeeper in the... Uh, in the history of the Buddhist Sangha, according to this book I've been listening to, he would stay behind when the monks went on alms rounds, and he would sweep and clean the uh, the monastic grounds. And he would also nurse the sick, and so on. Um, I felt very connected to him as um, I worked uh, during Sashin cleaning, you know, as a uh, housekeeping I uh, went into Sashin with a question about beings in general just we we talk so much about saving all beings and freeing all beings but what does that even mean when obviously I'm not bringing any beings to the cushion with me but what I am bringing with me it turns out is every assumption I make about beings, every resentment, every fantasy, every analysis, every expectation of beings is what I'm bringing with me. And that's what comes up. That's what we work with. And that's what... Um, was alive for me, really, just just before going into it. Um, Sashin is very bizarre because it, it, it can be very frightening to me. And yet, I don't really know what Sashin even is. In a sense, it's true that I've never really meditated at all. I have no idea what that is. I have no idea what happens. I have no idea what a, a sashin is. I've never done one. I've never meditated. I've never done a sashin. I've never done a minute of, of zazen in my entire life, in a sense. I can see that that's very true. It's really interesting. It's very, very true that that's the case. And yet, I panic. I fear when the time for sashin comes around. And why is that? It's um, because of Mara, the trickster. The one that knows that everything is going to go wrong, really. And I really had to work very intensely with this voice during this session. 
really, really rest in that flame of impermanence and accept it. Accept that voice very, very deeply at a level that I've never, maybe I've never even accepted it before. Resting in the kind of black fire of impermanence. Impermanence is a, it's a black fire because it's very easy to miss. So a black fire in the night would, uh, would go unnoticed for a very long time. And it's the same thing with impermanence. For some reason, it's so difficult to rest in, uh, a, um, uh, in just impermanence, in a deep, deep awareness of everything that passes through. That is so difficult to do. And it's so obvious after the fact. I really want to be in the moment and take refuge in the wisdom of impermanence. This is what I'm trying to do. This is really what I was forced to do by Mara. I'm really big on Mara. I'm very, very visual about Mara. And um, I love Mara very much. Mara is uh, Mara is my friend. I take care of Mara. I have no intention in destroying Mara. Mara is the voice of self-preservation. Mara, I mean, really in its essence, is the voice of, of you know, of just staying alive, of, of you know, just acquiring any story, um, even if it's very hurtful, in order to stay alive. So it's, um, it can result in very unwholesome habits. But Mara really is my friend. This this trickster voice is um, deeply a part of me. So I had a list of forbidden things that Mara was not allowed to to speak to me, to whisper to me, especially not during Sashin, where there's no distraction or entertainment, no escape. And so, what do you think happened? But that's exactly what Mara did. That's exactly where Mara went. And frankly, I was extremely disturbed. Extremely disturbed. But then something shifted. Something shifted. And I just decided to practice with that as well. I decided to not only engage with it at the level of um, of language, which is a, an incredible, uh, incredibly powerful way to work with Mara. Um, then the way that I do that is by asking it very directly, is that true? I mean, is that really true? And not trying to just automatically say no, no, it's not true, but really become curious about the answer because the, 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 the story is there. The, and the story is quite old. So just to get a little bit more specific, um, I, I have a fear of like mental illness, you know, and I have a fear of suicidality, of suicidal uh, self-harm really in the world. 
So I want to live at this monastery long-term. And there's a fear, what if I can't? What if the reason I can't is because my mind wants me to die? What I'll, you know, I'll, I'll begin, I'll become suicidal. I'll have thoughts of desiring death or desiring self-harm. And so that's, a, to me, a very horrifying thought because I don't want that to be the case. And that's exactly where the mind goes. The mind just says to me, kill yourself. And it's basically telling me, you're doing it. You're having the forbidden thought. You're having the thought that disqualifies you from significant spiritual practice. You can't do this. You have to leave. Please leave. Please run. Please die. Kill yourself. This is where the mind goes. So I don't need to tell you I was absolutely horrified, just horrified at this. But I had to work with it. I mean, I just had, it, there's just no way around this thing. Um, especially, you know, this is early on during a five-day session, so... I'm just sitting like, I'm just sitting there like, please don't do this to me. Please just don't go there. Let's not go there. And the more I said this, the higher the volume would go on these little scripts. So what happened was I suddenly saw myself what was happening. I was in this little room curled up into a ball and Mara standing over me yelling these things at me. And I just completely relaxed. Completely relaxed and accepted it as well. And um, really became extremely curious about my own capacity for relaxation into the present moment even with a thought that I would evaluate as horrific, as impossible to tolerate, as bad, evil, twisted, whatever. And it turns out everything is okay. Everything is okay. It just came out of the, on a, I don't know, this deep level of, of, of power and strength that has come through. And I felt this incredible confidence to be able to share this basic letting go and relaxation, even to someone really who, who's destroyed by despair, someone being split in half by despair, someone standing at the, the ledge of a building or someone with a gun inside of their mouth. I feel like even the, in that moment, if they were standing in front of me, I have something, something important to share with that person, something of value to share with that person. And this is relaxing into the black fire of the forbidden keep. You know, like a forbidden, the, the forbidden um, work that Mara was doing of finding the forbidden and really intensifying it, resting and relaxing, letting go completely 
into that, taking refuge in the impermanence of this whole process. Um, just, I felt like I got my life back. I, like I started living at that point. I mean, it's just incredible. So I begin to practice with, with this in this way. And as the days begin to roll along, whenever you learn something in Sashin, I have this tendency to want Sashin to be over immediately. There's an impatience that sets in, which is very, very um, understandable, especially if the lesson comes with a lot of pain, which it did, it usually does. Um, Roshi will... Um, Roshi has said to us that um, progress really only comes through difficulty. Something along these lines. This, this, these are my words, not his. So as the days progress, and these things come up, these inner critic attacks happen maybe twice a day, sometimes once a day, but twice a day maximum, one a day minimum. I'm standing there holding a stick of incense and I suddenly realize it was a very, very intense moment where Mara opened up to me in, with, with a sincerity that I had never um, seen before from Mara. And I realized that Mara, or maybe in a larger sense, the mind, but especially Mara, was deeply afraid that I was trying to kill it. It was deeply frightened that I was trying to kill it. And, you know, my heart just opened at this moment because I know that a million times over, I say to this voice in the shadow, I accept you, I love you, I surrender to you, I am grateful for you. I give you everything, I give you my whole life, this mind that does not belong to me, I give to you. This body that does not belong to me, I give to you everything that passes through me. None of this belongs to me. I give all of this to you. And you're afraid that I'll kill you. You're so afraid that I'll kill you that you want me to injure myself. You want me to kill myself. I mean, this is just... And so the days, <laughs> the days rolled by. I have this current question of Mara. Mara hides itself within sensation. 
and thrives, thrives on invisibility. Um, but the sensations are not personal and um, they can be seen without a, a sort of a story of past and future. And in that sense, Mara um, disappears really in, in, in a moment of, of deep uh, presence. But doesn't everything else, I mean, doesn't the, the self also? I have this question. I'm very curious about the meaning of, of, of non-self and, um, and how to experience it. So that basically covers what I went through during this week. I have continued to study, you know, the oldest um, Buddhist teachings, moved on to the Majjhima Nikaya, as well as to a very beautiful book on the disciples of the Buddha. I became very curious about Anuruddha, who um, was the master of the divine eye. So he was present when the Buddha passed away with Ananda. He and Ananda spent the whole night speaking of Dharma. Ananda was quite devastated. It's really um, heartbreaking. And I'm just, just so curious about him and his life. Um, Anuruddha, Anuruddha's life, so curious about him. Just an incredibly interesting person. But, I mean, I, I sit here asking myself if I have anything else to say about Sashin. Oh, I'll say this. I found myself sleeping less. I found myself maybe taking more refuge in the practice, you know, and walking around and just being outside, especially being outside, it's getting warmer. It's so much nicer. And petting the cows. The neighbor has these cows that will come up to the fence and he can feed them grass and they're so sweet. We don't really have any animals at all here at the monastery that we can pet. So I get a little bit of puppy time with the neighbor's cows. How cool is that? They're so sweet, you know? Got these big soft cheeks and covered in dry dirt. Their head. I don't know how. It's like the, their head butting the ground, maybe. I don't get it. I don't know. They're just wonderful creatures. So beautiful. So that's basically what I got. I, I mean, I would happily just relate the whole story of Anuruddha, but um, I don't think I'm going to. The story is available, and I love it very much. Maybe I will at some point. Nah, well, you know, I'm already here. Might as well go for it. So Anuruddha was a half-brother of Ananda, they were they shared a father and apparently did not grow up in the same household. So Anuruddha is uh, related also to um, to the Buddha himself. 
He lives in Kapilavastu, and he is loved by gods. So gods made sure that um, he had a good life surrounded by sensual pleasures. So he was so beloved by gods that on one occasion he uh, was playing with other kids and he was a grew up in a very wealthy home, very wealthy Sakyan home in Kapilavastu. They were playing marbles and he was betting cakes, um, you know, like when he lost. So he did lose three times in a row and he would just send um, cakes to pay the other boys. But then they ran out. And his mother um, sent word to him that there isn't any. There aren't any cakes. Now, Anuruddha had been so privileged that he had never even heard those words before. Nati puvam. There isn't any. So he just thought it was a different kind of cake. You know, I mean... Can you believe this guy? So he's like, all right, well, let's bring those out. (laughs) Bring out the the Natipuvam flavored cakes. Bring out the Ain't No, the Ain't No cakes. The the Nomo. Bring out the Nomo cakes, please. And so that's what his mother did uh, in an attempt to teach him a lesson. But the gods loved him so much, they held him so close that they filled the tray with marvelous cakes. And he loved them even more. They were even sweeter to him than the other ones. So he, you know, called for more and more of these, of these Nomo, of these Nomo cakes, of these Ain't No cakes. And so the gods kept him shielded from scarcity. They kept him surrounded and distracted with sense desires. So, fast forward some time. Um, his brother Mahachana tells him that the Buddha, the fully awakened one, has been visiting Kapilavastu. And all the Sakyan wealthy families have sent a son from their home to join the order of the bhikkhus except for their family. So Mahachana says to Anuruddha, My dear Anuruddha, either you go or I will go. And Anuruddha says to him, There's no way that I could, you know, live a homeless life. Like, I obviously am very attached to pleasures. And Mahachana says to him, Bruh. You need to understand that right now you're very like privileged and things are going very well. But when you take charge of the household, it's a lot of work and the work never ends. So Anurud is like, oof, in that case, I better go be a monk. You know what I'm saying? So that's what he does. But uh, he has to go ask his mother for permission. So he goes over there. And his mother, in an attempt to um, dissuade him from the path of ordination, um, says to him, go to your friend, the Prince Badia, 
And if he's willing to ordain, then I'll give you permission to leave. So he goes over to the Prince Badia and he says to him, My ordination depends on yours, so I need you to come with me, shave off your hair and beard, put on the yellow robes, and go forth from the lay life into homelessness. And the prince is like, eh, okay, wait seven years. And he's like, no, I can't wait seven years. Wait six years. No, I can't wait six years. Can you wait five years? No, I can't wait five years. And so on until they reach seven days. He's willing to wait seven days for the prince Badia. So that's what he does. And on the same day, setting out from um, these wealthy Sakyan families, is Anuruddha, the prince Badia, Ananda, Devadatta, um, Badu, Kimbala, and Upali, the court barber. They all set out together, pretending to go to like a park just to chill and hang out. You know, we're going to have a nice little picnic. We're going to have a nice little outing over here. Nothing to see here, right? They take off all of their jewels and they like stuff them in a bag and give them to Upali. And they say to him, you have served us your entire life. So now you can take this and, um, and afford yourself a nice livelihood. And Upali is like, nice, bro. You know, thank you. Thank you. And he's walking back with like a bag, you know, filled with like a billion dollars. And he realizes, you know, these Sakyan people are, are pretty fierce. So if I go back to Kapilavastu just with this bag filled with a million dollars, they're going to think I killed them. They're going to think I killed these people, the prince and his friends. So he gets rid of the bag of treasures, either tossing it in a river or hanging it from a tree or, you know, some something. And he goes and joins the party, and he ordains. So now this group of Sakyan uh, noble youths, wealthy youths, youths, these young men, um, don't have a way to repay him materially. So they say to the Buddha, we are all here to receive the going forward, but please ordain Upali first, and he will be our senior, and we will salute him, and this is how we will repay him for his service to us. And so that's how they, that's, that's what happens. Very beautiful story. And of course, Upali um, becomes known later as the one who keeps the Vinaya in his mind and recites it by memory at the first Buddhist council. So, Anuruddha was a very interesting person. Master of the Divine Eye. What else do I want to say about him? I want to, um, I guess, connect this last thing about him. I'm not going to go into all the other details that I happen to know about his life or his, his, his practice. But 
he was uh, he also practiced some very pretty severe austerities. Apparently not at the same level as Mahakasapa, but still quite severe. And he would lie he didn't lie down for over two decades, or didn't sleep for over two decades, and so on. Just you know, seems really extreme for for me nowadays. Uh, when asked what was the path to perfection, to purification. He just said the four foundations. That was his response. And so I think about that and I'm like, nice. I think about that and thinking about it, you know, joy springs up. And when joyful... Well, then rapture springs up. And when the mind is filled with rapture, the body eh, becomes tranquil. And when the body is tranquil, I feel bliss. And when blissful, the mind becomes immersed. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> 